Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. Your host is Bernadette Schwert, who you'll find at copyschool.com, and you can find out more about all our copywriting courses at copywritingcourses.com.au. Now, over to Bernadette. To niche or not to niche? That is the question. And it's a question I get asked a lot. So I thought I'd interview Lynn Testoni. She's a leading content creator and copywriter. Now, Lynn specializes in some of the most coveted topics you can imagine. Interior design, homewares, gardening, food, cookbooks, and much more. She's carved out a career that enables her to write about what she wants, when she wants, and to work with the people she wants. If you'd like to learn how to successfully niche your copywriting business, this is the podcast for you. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. If you'd like to get paid to write about something you love and know a lot about and become the go-to expert on that topic, you should become a copywriter. To find out more about how you can gain the skills you need to become a trained professional copywriter, take a look at some of our courses. A short course can make a big impact. Here's a review from Carol, who recently completed one of our courses. She said, I've always wanted to work for myself, get paid well, and express my creativity. I didn't realize copywriting was a thing until I found this course. I can't believe that I can get paid to write. I found my first client within a week of finishing the course, and my fee paid for the cost of the course. I finally found my calling. Well, well done, Carol. Now, to find out more about our courses, you can visit writerscentre.com.au forward slash essentials or copyschool.com. And if you like our podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Bernadette. It's so lovely to be here. I'm... It's sort of weird to be on the other side, really. I've done yeah. a couple, but not many. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really good that you could because I think your topic is so interesting because um, as a content writer, what I hear from a lot of the, the students mm. who do the courses and when I ask them what's your idea of a good client, nearly all of them say something like food, wine, homewares, interior <laughs> yes. design, architecture, right? And here you are doing all of that plus, yes. plus more. So it's a really lovely topic um, that I'd love to explore, which is niching, which mm. I know you have gone deep, deep into your niche. So, but firstly, let's let's hear a bit more about how you got started, because I know your, your life was in magazines and all those very glamorous magazines. Who did you work for? Oh, well, I started off at a sort of semi-country newspaper on the outskirts of Sydney, and then, but I loved magazines. I swear, when I was a cadet journalist, and I started as a cadet journalist, um, I used to spend all my limited amount of money on all those homemaker magazines like Vogue Living and Bell, and I just loved that. Um, and so it was always my dream to work in magazines, and I worked for a supremely dodgy one which um, opened and shut within six months. It was terrible. But anyway, because every time I went for jobs in magazines, they needed magazine experience and I just worked at this little local newspaper. But um, I finally, that little dodgy magazine only lasted for a few months, but it was enough to give me the magazine experience. And then my first big magazine was um, the Quintet, was Dolly magazine. Now, I, I grew up in a sort of... A, a, 
western suburbs of Sydney and Campbelltown. And it's the only time that growing up in Campbelltown has made a difference because the lovely Lisa Wilkinson also grew up in Campbelltown. And she gave me my break at Dolly. Uh, I think our parents actually played rugby together. So, and we went to the same local fairly average high school. So that was wonderful. And Lisa, honestly, was a great mentor and, you know, even still is. And um, she gave me my break and I worked at Dolly. And then after Lisa went to Cleo, I followed her and I worked at Cleo as well and did all those sort of things before. And then I left, well, I left um, Cleo when I was um, a few months pregnant, five months pregnant or something. Hmm. And just on that, we were just talking offline a second ago about Lynn's grandmother, right, which you'd never know because she's incredibly <laughs> useful because I'm seeing Lynn here, but you can't. But, uh, Lynn, what did you say to that about in the day? You, you didn't have well, the flexibility then, because... right, but now you yeah. do. It's interesting because um, sometimes I try and remember how much things have changed because certainly in women's magazines then we all talked, especially Cleo, it was all about the modern woman, so to speak, um, we all talked about how women could have families and careers, but of course, nobody ever had. And nobody, people had babies, obviously, here and there, but then they just left. I mean, that's what you did. There was no paid maternity leave. And that that's just the way it, it was. I mean, uh, full credit to Lisa, who was great. And she ended up having her three children while she was editor of Cleo. And that was pretty amazing. And she, you know, pioneered a lot of things. But basically, you had babies. And I worked part-time for um, suburban newspapers for eight years. Um, while while I had my children, I joined when I was quite pregnant and I worked a few days a week on and off until I ended up editing one of their papers. And then I went back to magazines. But it is funny because we all talked about how you could do the uh, sort of motherhood and career thing, but nobody really had. I should do all these like experts without actually knowing what we're doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> and and here you are as a grandmother and you were saying that you look after your grandchildren, which is such a delight and a gift. And you can mm. do that now. I mean, you're still working and you can still have yeah. that flexibility. So times have changed and that's one of the gifts of being a, a content writer. Um, it is. And that's wonderful about being a freelancer because I certainly in my day in magazines, terribly inflexible um you had to be in at a certain time you couldn't I used to the sprinting I you know I'd I'd have to catch um, when I was at L I'd have to catch the last bus to Lane Cove by a certain time I would run and I had to wear high heels because that's what you did at L and in like a kilometre sometimes I'd run to get from the last cup before after school care closed and all that sort of stuff and it was so inflexible at the Women's Weekly they pulled me aside because I couldn't get into quarter past nine because I couldn't drop my kids off and they they I had my pay docked because I was in late every day and um those sort of things just like people are aghast with it, but yeah. nobody else had. I was the only person, even at the Women's Weekly, I think, who had kids. And that was, you know, and they were a lot of them were older women. So a couple of the women, I think, had had kids, but most of them never did. Yeah. You are, you'd made that choice. And yeah. Um, it's a real yeah. shame, isn't it, that you had to make that decision and now it's uh, it's uh, encouraged. I mean, I was reading yeah. at Canva, they pay you or to get your eggs freezed or something, you know, you get time oh, off, wow. all that kind of stuff, which mm. it's fantastic for career women who 
you know, want to just keep going and mm. not. And I think that's what's wonderful. I've been freelancing for eight years and the flexibility, I mean, the joy that I have every second week, every second Thursday, I mind my granddaughter. And I, I often catch up on the weekends because I, I do have a full-time load, but um, I could never have done it. And sometimes I say to my daughters, I feel bad that I didn't have that sort of flexibility when they were young. But um, yeah, although they tell me that they never notice. <laughs> the difference that's nice about them. it behind mm, your back mm, probably mm. I'm saying, so <laughs> bad. you abandoned me <laughs> <laughs> yes but let's fast forward now because you're doing the work that as I mentioned a lot of people really really would love to get their hands on um, so just talk through some of the kinds of clients you work with and then we'll talk more about how you actually came to niche um well my my area of speciality or niching is um, interiors, design, and I do a bit of food as well. Um, I, and so, so I have a variety. I write for a different, a few different of the glossy magazines. I write for Inside Out and Home Beautiful predominantly, occasionally for Bunnings magazine. And then I write, um, I have a lot of corporate clients in that sort of construction and building space. I have a big um, client called CSR. And I work with them. They own um, PGH Bricks, Gyprock, um, Cementel, uh, Monia Roof Tiles. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And I've been working for them for quite a long time. Different parts. I started off with one of the pillars. I started off working, doing stuff for Monia and it's grown. I also work for a few builders, including there's a quite a successful builder in Sydney called Cape Cod. I work, I write for them. I write for the Landscape Association. It's an association of landscape designers, architects and construction people. I do something for Nico Timbers and Doors. I think I have, on average, like in a year, I probably have about 30 different clients. Some of them, like CSR, do a lot of work for. And, and others, I just might do a blog or two once or twice a year. Um, a few project home builders. And then I also famously, I often say, like I work for this company that does tools and nails and things like that. And so, yeah, so I do case studies for them as well. Yeah. Amazing. And how did that happen? Obviously, you were working with those kinds of magazines to some degree. And, and then, then how did that shift into the freelance side? Like, how did you actually find those clients for yourself? Well, I guess it, it, it's because I've been doing it for a long time and I have connections. Um, I think it's really interesting because back in the heyday of magazines, and I was in the heyday, uh, too many stories to tell there, but um, I did a lot of these brands that I now work for used to be key advertisers for the magazines, and now they tend to create their own content for their own websites. Some of them still work with um, with uh, magazines as well, and often the magazines know I have the client, and we have a sort of interesting open relationship. Whereas they're trying to get content from my clients, and they'll ask me because they know I understand the products. I do a lot of work with Winston Blinds, and they're often advertising with magazines, and because I know them and I understand their products. Um, it partly it started off really when I decided to leave the magazines and. Um, and, and freelance a bit. I do a bit of sub-editing as well. Um, I I just put a post up on Facebook saying I'm going freelancing if anyone knows of anything, um, as which is the sort of thing you say, Bernadette, really. And a friend of mine who I'd worked with in magazine, somebody in her, her she's a triathlon, a triathlete, 
So somebody in her triathlon club was looking for somebody to write or rewrite all the website copy for Luxaflex, which is a blind thing. And I was leaving, I worked for Inside Out. I was at Inside Out magazine, so interiors. And so I, I got that that gig writing for Luxaflex. And then Monia was also from that. Um, and it's those informal things. Like, so the Monia um, job came because somebody I worked with at Home Beautiful, who I used to commission for stories, um, happened to be a school mum friend of the marketing manager of Monier. And this, and the marketing manager of Monier spoke to her at the school gate and said, we need somebody to do this. Do you know of anyone? And actually, I think she might have asked Roseanne first. Roseanne wasn't doing it. And so, and she'd seen my Facebook post and suggested me. Mm. So that's what it is. And then I did, picked up clients. Sometimes I write stuff for different things for the magazines. I write a lot of, um, they, the magazines call it hardworking articles, which are like a buyer's guide to ovens or, um, you know, all about kitchen sinks, that sort of stuff, as well as like nice homes and things. And because actually the house, which I'm in now, which I'm just sold, is my eighth house. So I've renovated, I've built, I've bought, I've sold. I, I guess I have that sort of passion and interest in it. And I do understand a lot of that. And a lot of people in magazines, to be honest, don't have my longevity. And they might, they're still renting or they might have their first house. So I've probably got a lot more technical expertise. Not that I could be a plumber, but I've certainly engaged a lot of plumbers. Mm-hmm. And I know good questions to ask plumbers. Yes. Um, so that's sort of how it evolves. Sometimes when I do stories, like I might do a story on bathroom sinks or powder rooms, and I speak to lots of interior designers about getting hints. And sometimes they say, oh, Lynn, we, we want to redo our website. Do you, I see you do this. And so that's where I picked up people. Having all that stuff in my signature, my website and everything, often people, when I approach them for a story, for a magazine or even um, content piece for one of my corporate clients, because it all feeds into one another. So if I do some stuff for Jiprock, um, I do know one of their interior designers is a really well-known designer called Greg Natale. And Greg is amazing. He's just a joy to deal with, a really professional team. So sometimes Chiprock will say, do you know of some really good images? And I know that Greg has good images and he's done some beautiful staircases using Chiprock. So I'll reach out to Greg and he'll, he'll give me some quotes, maybe some images, and then, you know, it all feeds in amongst itself, yeah. Yeah, it's this lovely flywheel, isn't it? One thing leads to another to another. Mm. But I guess what's at the heart of it is your passion and interest in this yeah. particular topic. And as you said, it went into some pretty, you know, mechanical things like screws and drill <laughs> yes. bits and, you know, things like that where you wouldn't necessarily think that glamorous. But we we had another podcast together a few days ago on another on a um with Rachel, your business partner as well for Rachel's mm-hmm. list. And um we did talk about this. And I think it would be nice to cover it, which is so many students I know or just copywriters in general think, oh, I really want the glamour clients, you know, the, the Vogue's, for example, or it might be the football clubs or the sporting uh, identities mm. or the wine and fashion mm. movies, right? But not necessarily more of the hardworking articles that you've just talked about, but they're the ones that pay, you know. And I've, I've said this to my mm. students a lot over the years that by all means go for the glamour um, opportunities 
but they may not be as well paid as you might want or expect because so many people want mm. those roles. But if you go for, if you look at the richest people in Australia, Richard Pratt, you know, cardboard boxes, yeah. Lindsay Fox is trucking, um, Harry um, Triggerboff is real estate. You know, mm. so all I'm saying to, to, to my cohorts and my colleagues is don't aim so high necessarily in terms of the glamour. Go for the interesting things. And they may not be interesting at the first glance, but once you get into it, like I work with Monia Tiles as well in my advertising mm. career, you get into the terracotta and the, the, the way the, the tiles get built and the houses that get built with them. So, you know, this is, I think, an important point that we don't always have to go for the glamour shots. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's true. I mean, there's different aspects of that. One is that there is something glamour about glamour that attracts I know that some of my corporate clients, particularly the less glamorous ones, love that I write for Inside Out and Home Beautiful. So I don't I don't make as much money writing for those magazines, but they certainly pull in some of those less glamorous clients. So I get a bit of the sheen from the glossy magazines. And I think, so I guess that I regard like Home Beautiful and Inside Out, which are joys to write for and they're lovely people. Um, they're almost like um, loss leaders. Yeah. So they they draw things and it makes um, whenever I post something up on LinkedIn with one of my clips from those magazines, people get impressed. I did some stuff for the New York Times and everyone and one of my clients said, oh, hello, Ms. New York Times, because she'd seen it on LinkedIn. So it does give me a cachet. Um, I do think, though, I did a lot of that stuff in my, and I've interviewed lots of celebrities over the years back in the Clio and Dolly days, and, and also I worked for Foxtel magazine, a lot of celebrities and things like that too. Um, first of all, once you worked in that glossy magazine, you realise it's it takes the sheen off because it's just like every other thing. Instead of writing about um, for L, you're writing about fashion instead of tiles. Really, when it comes down to it, they're just commodities. Um, and that people, no matter where they are, are good and bad, smart and not, and all that sort of stuff. So it brings it down, gives you, a, I guess, um, an element of reality to it all. Um, also, I think a lot of those glamorous things I did when I was young, you know, I went to all the shiny cocktail balls and things like that when I was young and at Clio. And, and at Dolly and had all those fabulous times. So I don't really need like, to do it anymore. And once you've got your, your byline in vogue or whatever, you sort of think, oh, okay, it's just another magazine. It's just another thing. And and so I think I've done a lot of that. So it's very easy for me to say um, that. But also some of the, like fashion particularly, I couldn't, I can't work in fashion anymore. It's such a difficult industry. The people are challenging. There's people are going under, there's no money in it. And the more glamorous and um, uh, sort of niche or an area, the less, less money there is. And I know just from even freelancing, Vogue pays way less than some of the other magazines. So if you want to, and they're always trying to get people to do things for nothing. Um, so, but then I've found clients, you know, who are happy to, you know, do a photo shoot with the idea of getting Vogue or so, but so, cause everyone believes in it and there isn't a person who hasn't looked at my CV, who hasn't noticed that I worked at Vogue. Yeah. I worked at Vogue Entertaining too. So it was more the food and travel bit. Um, but yeah, so that's part of it, I think. 
But the people I deal with in the sort of the tools and the construction, they're such nice people, really decent, hardworking, lovely people. They're really professional and everything. I've got to say, people in fashion all over the shop, you know, and really unreliable. I spend all my time wrangling, challenging egos and things like that. I don't have to do that in in the sort of content side. So it's a bit of a, a mix, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. very interesting. And and then in terms of your version of copywriting versus content, can you maybe just talk us through what you believe to be the difference, if there is any more in your perspective? Um, the way I've always seen it is um, content is about educating and informing and sort of giving people a broader understanding. Copywriting is about selling and about persuading. Um, I do mostly content writing. I do a little bit of copywriting and um I think most of my work, if you looked at it broadly, I do a lot of case studies. Um, I interview, so something like um, roof tiles or bricks. Well, they're interesting products in the cells, but what is really interesting is about what people do with them and how they they choose a brick to create a beautiful home for themselves and why they choose it rather than just talking, this brick is this colour, it's got this texture and this is how it's made. So adding that personal element um, is always that's that's a fundamental thing about journalism or any sort of good storytelling anyway but that's what I mostly do and even when I talk about the I've been doing all these case studies of these particular um, they're called orbi plate connectors which connect um, steel to they're like nuts and bolts they connect steel to concrete or other steel frames and you think it's really hard to say something but I tell you I've written some great case studies about how these have made a difference to prestigious um, developments in um, Auckland that are exposed to high winds and this can help create these amazing verandas and balconies so people can enjoy spectacular views over the harbour. So that gives a personal reason why you'd want these sort of like bolts essentially. And I think there's always something when people are involved, it gives something a connection to anyone who's reading it and mm. um, I do do a bit of copywriting like brochures taglines head you know that sort of thing but um, and sometimes that forms the basis of it but um, a lot of it is more what I call content yeah mm. it reminds me when I um, that there's clients everywhere and that there's they're, they're interesting no matter what I was in a hardware store and I think I was renovating my house at the time as well and I needed a, a handle and I don't think about handles because right? I'm not an interior oh, yes. person like you. Like I just don't get into it. Very. It was like a, a, a real labour. It wasn't a labour of love. It was a labour. Mm. And I thought, I've got to buy handles. And I thought, oh, didn't even realise handle shops existed, right? So I go to the hardware store and this guy directed me down to the back of the shop and there was this big book. It was this beautiful merchandised book. Mm. And you open up this, you probably know what I'm talking about, this cardboard mm. cover. It's like this big mm. storybook. And there's all these inlaid handles and there was these... Um, like cards showing what mm. each handle did. And I'm like, there's so much copywriting here. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And features and benefits and why this handle is curved and this one's not. Mm. And then that moment, I remember thinking, wow, there's copy behind everything. In every product yes. in this in this hardware store, mm. there's a world, there's an industry. And that I just find that exciting as a copywriter because you think, well, what do I enjoy doing? What do I love? And if you look past the surface of products, which is boring or interesting, mm. every story 
every product can be interesting because as you said a bolt actually determines whether a house can stay up in a storm or not or enables people to stand on a balcony or not so I think that's that's the interesting thing and I think that's where people find copywriting quite interesting or content writing because they go I didn't realize there was so much thought going into Mm. writing a piece of copy, you know, about a bolt or a roof tile. But there is, you have to understand what it's made of. What are the features? What are the dimensions? What are the ingredients? You know, and why are they important? Mm. So, yeah, that's why I think people are attracted to copywriting and content writing because it's endlessly interesting about the products that you're working on. And it challenges you every single time with a new product. You have to get your head around a tile, a, a bolt, you know, mm. a screw, you know, that, that's, that's it's fantastic. Um, and I love that challenge and the joy of finding something, a great story within something that's so prosaic and you can, what it does. And it's really fun. And I used to think when I worked in food magazines and I worked, I've worked for Gourmet Traveler and I've worked for Superfood Ideas and with Superfood Ideas, we'd have a cover that was like, like once every second or third month, it'd have to be mince because it's a supermarket mass market and gourmet obviously you can do anything but or vogue entertaining so the challenge in making a, a cover with a recipe of mints looking amazing compared to an amazing piece, piece of um, meat from a high-end butcher there's it's way more challenging and there's something in it um and i lo- i liked that and i love that challenge and the the fun thing about it and it's the same with the bolts or um the the decking screws and also when you speak to the carpenter and he says these decking screws have changed my life using this and they now i can do a deck in half the time and i have less re-drilling and all this stuff and you think wow and somebody in behind those decking screws has really thought about it and you get an appreciation of um skill and love and and I, I quite like that. Yeah. yeah. But maybe that's the longer you're around. And it's just like when you do build a house and you go and you look at door handles and realize, oh my God, there's a thousand door handles <laughs> around. And then you think, oh, so part of my job, either in the magazines or whatever, is to make that choice in the hardware store a bit easier. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and the customer doesn't need to know all that work that you've put into making that decision easier. And I agree with you about the, the humanity in some respects of the trades or the worlds out there that don't get a lot of attention, you know, or a lot of kudos, The you know, the builders, the plumbers, the the, the sparkies, and yet they're the ones who, yeah. And they good. love it when yeah. you are really interested yeah. because, you know, if you talk to them about decking screws, they love that you get it. And yeah. the more I do, the more appreciation I have. And it is that niche that feeds. I know a lot more about decking screws. I know a lot about different types of timber. I mean, I'm nowhere near practical and anything, but I do know the difference between treated pine and merbo and antique and all these different things and what they're good for. And the more you know, the better questions you ask and it feeds in amongst itself. And they un- realize I know what I'm doing I know what I'm talking about yeah yeah Mm. and that builds connection and rapport which Mm. of course leads to more clients and referrals and in fact just the other day when we were talking you were saying how the niching can actually lead to more income for the reasons we've just outlined but also you know you said to a client oh have you heard about the new national building code and they hadn't you know well it's happening so therefore you've become a resource to them you've become a source of information that they may not have had. So that, again, just builds your credibility 
and more opportunity it for does, work as well. But also it feeds into giving them opportunities they didn't know existed. So I've written about the new National Construction Code for my Windows clients, for CSR and for a few other things because it actually impl- it's, it's, um, has effects everywhere. And so it's a lot about sustainability. That's There's a lot of sustainability in this new code. And that gives, and of course, like the timber and door, people may not have thought about why that could should be communicated to their customers. And it's a great thing. So it's a great angle for them and everything, particularly as they're quite eco-conscious and that's important to them. So I think that you sort of know what's happening and it does feed opportunities. Um, sometimes I connect people, people... I, I helped um, connect, say, Wattle, which is a paint company, with with um, the Bricks people because they um, they were doing a sort of a lookbook, a launch together, and they worked together on that. And, of course, the person from the Bricks pers- person said, oh, I think we'll get Lynn to write it. And Wattle said, oh, my God, I know Lynn. Oh, that's really good. And she said, she's great. And they said, she's done, yeah. So it, it feeds and it makes everyone look connected um I've worked for a lot of agencies too that um I work for two or three different agencies in this business and often when they speak to the end clients they've also worked with me so they sort of say oh that's okay in fact CSR I did a piece for them through an agency and the the client rang me and said I'm so glad it's you because I know you understand the business and you're yeah so it does everyone feeds in amongst each other and it yeah. It does work. So that kind of is interesting to explore in that respect because people think niching is narrowing and in a way by niching you're actually going deeper but you are in a way tapping into a scene that's much broader and wider than you could have imagined. So it's not necessarily a, a negative, right, because some people think, oh, I don't want to be boxed into something. In fact, you're not. You're just saying I'm just going deeper, which gives me more. Well, that's true. And also there's two things. One is that you become the go-to person. So I get a lot of, it's pretty rare that I pitch for new clients. Occasionally I do, or I see something and I think, oh, I could do that because I know. And then I often get it because I do know somebody or I know that niche. I've got the right clippings as I would have said. Um, But I am the go-to person. So usually people come to me and say, I've heard you do this. And they ask my rates. So I don't ever have to pitch. I don't often have to negotiate. I usually come in with a rate. I'm probably more expensive, but then they know that I do. And even if I'm about the same price, I'm actually more efficient because I can probably write a blog post on the new National Construction Code way quicker than somebody else who doesn't have the background I know or I know where the research is and where the government sort of yeah the legislation is so I can turn it around a lot faster so even if I'm being paid the second I'm actually making more per hour if that makes sense Mm. um but you do become the go-to thing and I often get people also stay within their industries so the um decking screw person is a lovely person Hannah that I've worked with um, she was at Monia and I worked with her and then I've worked with her at a couple of places and, um, and Monia still used me. So I ended up when Hannah moved to this company, she picked me and asked me to write some things. Plus also, even though my topic or my niche is deep, I've broadened my offerings within that. So originally I started just writing 
Now, and then, of course, what they want, they want to do photo shoots. So I coordinate a lot of photo shoots and I use all my connections from magazines, a lot of these editorial photographers and stylists who are so thrilled to get advertising content rates but are really good. So I organize photo shoots. Sometimes I organize models because I've obviously done that sort of stuff when I did celebrity photo shoots. I know hair and makeup artists, I know agencies. So I do a lot of that sort of project management. I've also started from writing and I did blogs on say the decking screws. And then they asked me if I could organize a video shoot which I'd not done before. So I started doing that. And then I started writing video scripts. So I've written quite a few video scripts within that niche. So even though the niche is still broad, uh, narrow, the offerings are broader. So now I write lots of different types of content. And then somebody asked me to do, um, I've done, yeah, lots of scripts. I've done um, some website copy and then I start doing bigger look books doing design advice I've been a specialist commentator for some of my clients because they know I know enough and um, yeah so it just all feeds amongst itself yeah sounds amazing sounds like you have an incredible career really rich mm. and Lynn if you were advising someone who's starting out to think about niching what kind of tips or advice would you give them um I th it's hard to say. First of all, I think niching, like all parts of being in business and being a freelancer, is about um, connections and networking. So if you're in a niche, you have to be nice and professional with everybody. If I was horrid or dealt or th had a tantrum, that's the trouble when you're in a niche. It would soon spread, Right. So you have to treat everyone with respect. You go above and beyond. Um, you connect everyone. You're always. So I think that's important. I think a niche, it just, it finds you to a point. You just start, there is something that you do um, and then people find you and then you communicate. And also I would suggest if you do something, if you write something in an area that you think this is mine or I like it, um, You'd say, is there anyone else that, you know, you could speak to getting referrals with it? Because they all know each other. Um, and a niche doesn't have to be something as clear as mine. Like in interiors, I've known people who are niche in things like case studies. And it could be all sorts of industries, but it's a certain type of writing. I've known people who niche in, um, there's somebody we had on our podcast, and his niche is his tone. So he started, Shane Cubis, he started off at, um, at The Chaser. So he'd um, been a writer with them back in the day. And he has this really irreverent, a bit boy's own, really cute, funny sort of content. And now he writes that style of content, particularly for universities and all. So his niche is his tone and his tone of voice. Um, sometimes people, I think a lot of my niching is case studies, um, sometimes people are great at niching. I do a lot of the other niche. I sort of have a secondary niche, I guess. I do a lot of recipe editing. Um, so that's a niche within copy editing. And it's actually really hard to find people who can do recipe editing. So I've edited, I think, five or six cookbooks. 
And I often do things for big retailers, like I've certainly um, edited for Coles and Woolworths and um, things like HelloFresh and all that sort of stuff. There's So there's always work in that area. And most of those people are people I've worked with for sort of 15 or 20 years. So the first time I did food was in the Women's Weekly Test Kitchen. Um, and almost everybody I worked with is still in that industry and now they're everywhere. So that's part of that, getting that niche. Um, I, which I still quite like. Um, it just takes up a bit more time and I probably get more work from the other. Um, but, yeah, and that's changed a bit too. Mm. I think also what you're saying there, Lynn, is the people you meet now are the people you meet in 5, 10, 15 years' time. So if you're thinking, if you're starting out now as a copywriter, um, be be mindful of that. And I'm not saying people aren't, but just know that if that relationship doesn't work for whatever reason, you leave well is my thinking always leave well you know leave on good terms leave on good terms even if it's not your fault you know because in three five seven years time that person might Mm. come back around and they'll remember how that that relationship ended so I think that's a a good lesson that's actually a lesson that Lisa Wilkinson taught me because Lisa had started off as the um, receptionist or editorial coordinator at Dolly and then she worked her way up to editor. And she remembered everyone who'd been really horrible to her when she was um, the coordinator. And some, and she had great friends from the time that they were the messenger boy from Polygram. And she was, you know, she knew, like, I don't, Lisa's pretty good. And she didn't necessarily um, hold grubs, but she grudges, but she certainly knew who'd been treated her well. And that's also, I think, when you've been an editor and you've gone to freelance, I remember people who were fabulous to me as editors and never when I was an editor and then forgot, you know, later. Yeah. So you sort of, yeah, I I, I definitely think I'm sure everyone's like that. So being nice, helping people. Yeah. hmm. Give to get. Generosity. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And Lynn, you talk about your redundancy scones. Can you talk to me a little bit about your redundancy (laughs) scones? I know this is one of my um, favourite things is, um, when we're talking about generosity and helping people, um, I guess when I'm a bit of evangelical about freelancing, I love freelancing. I think for all the reasons we talked about of going and finding yourself and working for different people, having that freedom, um, you know, I earn 50% more as a freelancer than I did when I was in-house. And I, plus I have a much better life. Um, so, but... I still have a lot of friends within um, more conventional media, what level there is, and almost all of them have been made redundant at some point. And that happened particularly like COVID was terrible and there's been. So because I love freelancing, I'd have a couple of friends, uh, a friend of mine was made redundant and I had her over for um, scones and I was really into scones as I still am because I'd just done a country cookbook, a lot of scones. And I said, oh, I, I'll make some scones and we um, have tea scones and I'd help them, you know, sort of say this is, you know, not a bad thing. If you want to freelance, I'd, I'd show people, give them tips about things like how to set up a website, um, good um, freelance networks, which uh, freelance communities that I'm part of that I think are really helpful. And, you know, give them tips about how to do it and maybe some of the suggest, you know, suggest contacts that they might find if they want to good website platforms, um, uh, things like, you know, accounting software that might be helpful, how to sell, send an invoice, all that sort of stuff. 
So anyway, so it used to become a thing and suddenly it became a thing that people called them redundancy scones. So when people were made and then one of my friends was made redundant, he said, oh, look, I'm coming over for scones and and it became a thing and I love it and and it's quite fun and I've had a lot of, when people were made redundant, I have heaps of them over. And I also think that's also helped my career. That was never my intention of doing it. I was just doing it because I feel for people in that cir- circumstance. But, you know, inevitably they find their feet. And um, wherever they go, whether they're freelance or they become editors, and, you know, they remember me, they give me work, they share they share experiences. Sometimes I can ring them and say, do you know of somebody in this area that might be a good expert to comment on this story, whatever. And I think that helps your network as well. Mm. Yeah, lovely. Beautiful mm. story. And talk to me about podcasting because I know that's that's a topic close to your heart. Why Why do you love podcasting? Well, I do love, well, so po- the podcast that I have, the Content Bite with Rachel, Rachel Smith, um, came about because of things like the redundancy scones. Everyone, and because of my longevity in the industry, everyone would want to um, pick my brains, um, ask for coffee, come over. And obviously I do it sometimes, but there's a, there's a limit to how often you could do it. And often, particularly, and also when you get to a certain age, everyone wanted their daughters to come over or that usually their daughters for some reason saying, oh, you know, do you want to have a chat with my daughter? She wants to do this, especially in the days when I did more glamorous stuff like food and wine and um, fashion. Um, And she wants to do this. So instead of having a million cups of tea with people (laughs) um, saying the same things over again, we thought, well, maybe we should, I should have a podcast with Rach. So Rach and I have known each other as colleagues and now we've become closer friends, but we've been doing the podcast for four years. And it started off with just the things that we know that people always pick our brains with. And to be honest, when people email me about picking my brains, I usually send them, yeah, happy to at some point, but maybe you could listen to my podcast. And that's what often happens. They do. And then and on the podcast, we talk about all those things, but we also have lots of um, freelance writers in all sorts of different niches like you and working in different things. Um, and then they sort of hear about all the different ways to do it. So they're not just hearing about the way I do it. They're hearing about all the different sort of niches, all the different areas you can work in. It's a bit more encouraging that way. Mm. Lovely. Mm. And networking, you've talked about that a little bit and the power of it mm. and how it's uh, um, you know impacted your career. What kind of techniques would you recommend um, copywriters use for, te- for networking now? Um, I, I think it's when you're starting out, say yes to everything. Um, go, go to every function, no matter how lame. And I've been to a lot of really lame functions, but um, I usually try and meet at least one person. Um, I have to say, Bernadette, that this is one of the things is I'm an extrovert. I love people. I've always loved people. But also I think as when you get older, you realise it's never about me. It's always about them. So I don't go in with an ego. I chat to people. Um, somebody once told me that it's really good to approach a group of two because they're usually either, if they know each other, they're always happy for a third person to join them and it, 
and break it up or it gives somebody an excuse to leave if they have to or or whatever or at least provide a variety of conversation I think that's good I will approach people and just say you know hi I'm Lynn this is what I do and that's about it it's pretty uh, yeah I also have business cards we talked about that before I've usually had them from old it seems old-fashioned but it's really nice to just give somebody that so you can say this is what I do um and and I don't really sell myself, but it's always a connection and that you hear about things. And I remember people, I'm pretty good at remembering people and I keep them in mind. Sometimes I will use them. If I'm at a function, went to there's the Master Builders Association, say, there's always somebody I will pick up. Like when I went last time to one of their luncheons, um, one of my clients happened to be there. So th that was great. And then she reminded, and then she gave me some work because she saw me in triggered that she was going to send me an email to to ask me to do an extra blog for her um so I, I think um just going to everything I also think connecting with everybody on LinkedIn without selling so just connecting I connect with all my clients on LinkedIn which is great so that means if they move they I still have a connection with them I don't really say do you need somebody to do this but I post on LinkedIn a bit about like portfolio, like a story that I wrote, an article I did for some content. That's all I do when I come up in their feed and they think, oh, I need somebody to do this. Look, she's done something on nuts and bolts. That would be okay because we're looking for somebody on insulation, you know. So I think that being top of mind. Um, and I think networking is always being agreeable, being nice, being generous, all that sort of stuff, not yeah, no ego. Yeah. I think that's important because, yeah, I think that's the main thing. Yeah, that's well said, Lynn, and no, no pushing, you know. People do or they don't or they don't need you at that time. And I think that triggering is a really great point that sometimes when you see somebody, you think, oh, I've been meaning to do X, and that face goes, you're it, right? And they maybe okay. would have done it anyway, but they might not have. They might have got someone else. But you've been the last presented. they saw. Mm. Exactly, the recency and primacy, yeah. So, um, Lynn, well, it's been... I, I was going to say one thing just on that is that I was on a plane coming back from Perth and the woman next to me had brochures of sort of hinges, door hinges, and I went, oh, what do you do? So she had this whole thing and she's from Belgium. She's only been in the country for three months and she's setting up the new um, business for her company, which is a really big European country. And I said, oh, and I emailed one of my clients who's a door company, and I said, I met this interesting, this is a really interesting product. You might be of interest. Would you like me to introduce you? And she said, I have a look. I passed it to our product person, but glad you emailed because I had this story that I was thinking of approaching you about. Yeah. And so whether anything comes from the hinges, it doesn't really matter, does it? That's right. That, that's that give to get, you know, yes, it's the it's, sense of just share yeah. Be yeah. helpful, be useful, be kind, which yeah. is probably a lovely way to finish. Nice. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for this wonderful Pleasure. chat. Pleasure. What a one, an amazing career. All the best. <laughs> thank you. Lynn is a wonderful example of how you can merge your passion to create a profit by pursuing the career of your dreams. And in closing, you have to choose a client or a topic or an industry to write about. Why not choose something you love? makes sense doesn't it so here's my joke to finish off our podcast for today and it's a joke that all the seo copywriters i know will appreciate 
So this SEO copywriter walks into a bar, grill, pub, public house, Irish bar, bartender, drinks, beer, wine, liquor. Yeah, I thought you might enjoy that one. And a quote to finish off with, and this came from Arthur Ashe, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And that's it from me. All the best and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. Do you want to get started as a professional copywriter? Have a look at our course, Copywriting Essentials. Created by Bernadette Schwert, this five-week online course will teach you how to write words that sell and get paid to be creative. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash copywriting. And thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au.